Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy, where I interview entrepreneurs about how they built their businesses for an audience of ambitious entrepreneurs who are, guess what, building their businesses. I'm so excited to have today's guest on because I don't know what the hell he's doing here. Because frankly, his company has done incredibly well. I don't think he needs more of an audience, but I really appreciate him coming here because I've been fascinated by them. Lyndon Tibbetts is the co-founder of IFT. I knew them back when they were If This Then That. It was an amazing and still is an amazing piece of technology because what it does is it connects multiple tools that we use to make them more useful. Little things like if you post to Twitter, also save it to your own notepad in case you get booted off of Twitter. Those little connections are helpful. And then when you start to add connections in the house, like if a sensor goes off, turn on the light. If this, then that, if I'm excited to have him on here because I want to find out how the early, about the early days of how the business uh, came about, how they've grown, and uh, also I feel like today marketing is being done for them by the tools that use them. So I can't tell you, we were just looking for automation uh, tools for our new house, light switches, plugs, that kind of a thing. I think every one of them made sure to tell me they work with Alexa, Google, and Ift. I think in the headline of all those products, when you you got your name in there, I don't think you need a Mixergy interview. So I'm grateful to you, Lyndon, for doing it. I'm grateful to the two sponsors who are making this happen. The first, if you've been listening to the Web3 space, and a lot of it is turning you off, but this DAO idea of how communities get together and own and decide and do things together, I'm going to tell you later on about why you should subscribe to a podcast I'm creating about how DAOs uh how DAOs work and it's available at joinorigami.com slash podcast and the second if you're hiring developers later i'll tell you you should go to lemon.io slash mixergy but first Lyndon, good to have you here andrew thank you happy to be here do you know how many different tools how many different products include ift in them i think we're really close to 800 just under 800 now so um yeah a lot, lot of smart home stuff in there but that that makes about a fourth of the services on ift um but hopefully, if it's a tool you use, a brand you love, uh, it's on Ift or will be on there shortly. So, yeah. What's an automation that you create? Give me a sense of what's possible and fun. Yeah, I mean, a couple of ones that I go to uh, uh, whenever I'm asked that question. You know, so I've had a Tumblr. I don't even call it a blog. It's like a like a log of all the things that I like in a Feedly reader. So I have a, uh, an applet is what we call the kind of unit of automation on Ift uh, that takes, you know, Feedly likes and creates either pictures or video posts on Tumblr. Uh, it takes like YouTube uh, uh, favorites. Um, so kind of, it kind of pulls from a few different things. And it's a combination of three or four different applets. Um, and I go back and look at it every once in a while. But uh, I think the, the other thing I do with an applet that's kind of related to that is then pull some of those uh, pictures. So anytime there's a new photo post on my Tumblr blog, uh, I pull that into a folder with Dropbox, uh, save it in a very specific folder that then like powers my uh, screensaver. So, you know, I've got <clears throat> here my home office setup. I've got the super nerdy, like three big ass monitors here. And so I like annoy my whole family with the, the nerdy design photos that I like. So. Uh, it only goes about 20 minutes uh, before they, they you know, can't take it anymore. But it, I like it. I could do it for two hours. The little one I want to set up is if someone's taking a shower, then turn on that fan. I hate having that, that uh, steamy bathroom. 
Oh, anyway. yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. We we have, I think, one shower head. There were a couple for a while. Uh, that was one of the IoT kind of products that didn't quite take off. It's uh, tough to convince someone to replace their shower or shower setup. Well, I... I've been watching these people on YouTube who talk about different sensors, and I don't want to make anyone uncomfortable in my house by having a sensor in there, but if it's small enough that you don't notice it or is attached to the door of the shower or something, i got to think about what it is. But it's kind of fun because what you're doing is you're programming your life with IFT, and that's mm -hmm. that's the exciting part. And as someone who's watching businesses from afar, what I like about your business is every one of these tools, every one of these apps is kind of promoting you, and so mm -hmm. you don't have to get out there and buy ads the products are already telling people that, that you exist and how you work. But I, I brought this up before we got started, and you gave me this surprise look. So I said, let mm -hmm. me bring it up in the interview. Mm -hmm. A while back, like three years ago, I think, four maybe, um, TechCrunch said that you left and you were replaced by like a, mm -hmm. a CEO of Monster who's now taken over. But mm -hmm. are you back? Yeah, you yeah. I, I never left, uh, and it was... Um it was uh, my my decision actually, and so this <clears throat> kind of gets a little bit into kind of the the recent history of the company. But you know, we we had always been successful. Uh, to your point about just kind of almost having like free advertising, we've always been successful getting people to sign up and use it. Right? We see six thousand new users sign up every day, and it's almost like no matter how we try, <laughs> that that can't stop. Right? Like it, we haven't grown it as much as I'd like to. We'd love to grow a lot faster, but it just kind of like we're here and, and there's kind of a network effect there on the kind of services side that, you know, is, is really awesome. But, um, you know, the business itself, uh, was always a little bit of a struggle. Um, uh, you know, I think, uh, we started, uh, I'd say now been about six years ago, we felt that we wanted to build something for a very broad audience, make it as easy as possible. You know, how do we make, you know, automation or, effectively programming as like user-friendly as possible. One of the ways you do that is never say programming and really even never say automation if, if we can avoid it. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the other part of that was, okay, if we're kind of building this very broad, generally useful tool, how likely are they going to be to pay for this, right? If, you know, you, you know, I think there was a time there, um, I think this has all changed, thankfully, where it's kind of like if, if you paid for something online, it was probably like Netflix, there's a pretty steep drop off after that. Um, and so we tried to build a business around the brands themselves. We felt that we were doing something that was really difficult for those brands to do themselves unless they were, you know, some massive social network or something like that, uh, which was effectively kind of build out their developer platform and API and that developer community. Um, so they can kind of shortcut that and a lot of the hassles that come with it by plugging into IFT. And we thought, well, shoot, that, that would be valuable enough for uh, these companies to pay for. And we did okay. You know, we had a full sales team, customer success team, all really awesome people. And uh, got to about a 5 million ARR business. Uh, had, you know, probably about 10 or 15 brands uh, paying six figures or more annually uh, to essentially be on IFT, right? Like we, we played with all kinds of ways, you know, figured out how to meter it or, or, you know, how does a brand pay more or less depending on their usage. But it was so damn hard to sell. You know, it was... Um, if you're an enterprise, you understand, you know, buying Slack or buying, you know, Microsoft Office, you know, like these are tools for your employees to do their work. You can put a price on that. It's very kind of, you know, it's a, it's a motion that you're kind of going through, you know, all the time. But 
you know, when you're asked to put a price tag on something that your users or customers are going to value, um, it's a lot more difficult. And that was, that was our challenge. It was just very, very hard to sell. The sales cycles were like six months plus and we couldn't figure out how to get them shorter. Um, but anyways, you know, somewhere in the middle of there where I kind of going through this process of figuring out how to grow this business faster, uh, I decided, you know, I just wasn't the right person to build an enterprise business. You know, it, it wasn't uh, something I had a lot of experience with or, you know, passion for. I had passion for building the company and building the product. Um, but it just wasn't something that I, I felt myself kind of getting up in the morning and saying, like, I can't wait to figure out how to shorten our sales cycle. And uh, so, yeah, I, I told the board, hey, maybe someone else can do this better than I can. And uh, yeah, they were, they were pretty open to the idea. So I stayed on, I was the, um, I can't even remember what my title was, but it was, you know, head of product or design or something like that. And, uh, you know, somewhere in that process, as we made that transition, I think we also ran into the kind of realization that this business wasn't going to be the hundred million dollar opportunity that we thought we could build. And so we shifted gears kind of in the middle of that. I stepped back in as a CEO and uh, started working on building the business around consumers. So uh, we launched a thing called If Pro two, two and a half years ago. And like within two months, we had another $5 million ARR business. <laughs> so it was kind of like, oh, just maybe a lot easier and kind of aligns with who we are and what we're passionate about. So we've never, never looked back. If Pro is for consumers who need multiple applets. Yes. That's right. Multiple applets, more, more, uh, you know, kind of features, more complexity. So if this and that is kind of the basic applet, but if you want to add what we call a query in there, if, if something happens, when you're home or when you're away or when someone's in the shower or, or what have you, uh, and then do, you know, multiple things, you know, uh, send an email or send an email and log it to a spreadsheet or so on and so yeah. forth. So, uh, kind of power user tools. And we're shifting more and more. I think, you know, smart home is almost uh, something that found us. And it's always been really exciting because it always kind of kind of matched the vision of, you know, everything was going to be an Internet service, you know, not just, you know, abstract digital things, but, you know, physical things, too. Um, so I think that will continue to be a, a big driver for the business. But we're really excited now about individuals kind of not unlike yourself. I think you probably uh, maybe are. are just outside of that category, but, you know, calling it the enterprise of one doesn't necessarily mean it has to just be one person. Uh, but there's just so many ways that people are building businesses that aren't necessarily VC backed startups mm -hmm. with the internet today. And even if you're a real world kind of brick and mortar business, you run a barbershop or tattoo parlor, um, that business is so much more digital than it was even three or four years ago. And so we think that's no, kind no, of an exciting I new customer for us. I always wondered why you didn't go into business tools. Mm -hmm. So you were always on the consumer side. In fact, I think on your homepage right now is f the featured applet is date night mm -hmm. and it sets everything up for date night, but people don't really pay to have that kind of a setup for home mm -hmm. versus business where you have a real problem. A problem that I had, for example, was we were using review the Twitter email software to collect email addresses. I wanted those email addresses to also go in our CRM and then frankly to go in another email provider because who knows what's going to happen to review. Actually, I now know Elon Musk killed it. Mm -hmm. And for that, you pay because it's a business need and each one of those interactions is a potential customer. Your tool could have done that, but you never pivoted towards that. I wonder mm -hmm. why. 
maybe until now is, is kind of what I'm saying. I think we've <clears throat> we've realized, you know, maybe a, a more general statement is I can't think of a startup or, or founder that has been given the room to make as many mistakes as we have, you know, and, and thankfully mm. none of those mistakes have really been the, a nail in a coffin. Um, and none of those mistakes were like negligence as, as much as uh, I'm one of the things I'm so grateful for, not just investors, but, you know, people that have worked at IFT over the years, you know, I've been working on IFT since like 2009, still just as excited, I think. Uh, but, you know, for different reasons. Uh, and we've just, we changed so many things and tried so many things, but have also come back around to things that we thought were like, almost like core principles. And, and so one of those core principles that we're now starting to realize was kind of a bad idea was kind of this aspiration to build a very general tool. Uh, was really inspired by just how magical search is. And maybe kind of a tie into what you were saying earlier about, you know, uh, AI, uh, perhaps. It, you know, you can use it for so many different things, right? Like, you know, Google didn't build search for this one use case. It was kind of a use case that mapped to all kinds of different problems. And so we always kind of said, well, hey, let, we don't need to pick an audience. You know, in fact, even though the smart home found us, we never said we're a smart home company. Um, in fact, the majority of what people do with their smart home products on IFT is connecting their smart home product to like a purely digital, you know, service, Dropbox or the weather or something like that. Um, and I think that was a mistake. <laughs> and I think we, I think, you know, just like a lot of those other mistakes, we still have room to make up for it. We've been, you know, effectively break even, running the company break even for about three years now. Um, the team is growing again. We've, I think we've gotten back to the largest the team has ever been is about 44, 45. I think we're there again now. Um, wow. So yeah, I think I think this, you know, kind of focusing on exactly what you're describing, the problems so that involve helping maybe people not build enterprise business people because they're more willing to spend. And then as opposed to features that make your life better, features that solve problems. And for me, the problem was review email addresses, moving over to, I don't know, ConvertKit or something. Totally. Um, Okay, I got gotcha. you. Um, and I wouldn't say that that it was maybe it was mistakes of oversight, but it's not a mistake of we screwed up and lost everyone's data. Or we oh, screwed no. up, and you you never made any of those mistakes where you did something bad. It was maybe a different opportunity that you could have gone down. And I think for that reason, there's still a lot of positive energy for for if. Oh, totally. You know what yeah, I saw? There's one. There's one person in the space, in the automation for enterprise space, that had an interesting idea because a lot of them are just, let's just go for a cheaper product and and make it maybe a little easier. There's one that I forget who it was who said, why do people even need these outside services? Why don't we just embed ourselves in with the tools? And so if you're using ConvertKit or SendInBlue or MailChimp, why should they say, go use one of these automation tools? Why don't they just mm -hmm. embed it in? and mm -hmm. To me, that made sense a lot, and that seems mm -hmm. like an enterprise-worthy expense. But I don't know. Enterprise yeah. of one might be a better diversification. Yeah, yeah. It's. Um, <clears throat> I think we're going to avoid going back into selling directly to an enterprise. <laughs> Makes uh, sense, but, uh, right? But, the, uh, right. but you, what you what you hit on is actually what we were trying to do when we were building that enterprise business, and we actually uh, have been fairly successful. It's one of those. Maybe one of the mistakes that we haven't quite come around to <laughs> acknowledging yet, um, you know, the uh, we built a thing called Connect um, and it has an SDK and it allows people to take 
again, kind of that unit of value, what we call an applet automation, and embed that in a mobile app or a website. And uh, we've got some awesome brands using that. iRobot, Husqvarna, YouTube actually uses it for some things. And so it allows them to kind of shortcut, you know, hey, go use if for this. It's more just like, here's here's an integration that we offer on, on site. You don't have to go anywhere for it. Um, and yeah, we've got a lot of people. I think we still see a thousand uh, folks a day sign up because of those types of integrations. I'm curious about how you got started and then about where you think the future of automation will be. Mm-hmm. I saw very little on your LinkedIn profile. Uh, you really are like, well, you've had a couple of different positions before IDEO, but it was IDEO and then if it feels like IDEO was just helped shape the way you think. Even your logos are fairly similar. That mm-hmm. clear, the letters stand for themselves. We're not adding another image type of experience. Mm-hmm. How did it shape you? Yeah, I mean, maybe even before IDEO, I think there was one other thing that maybe only gets you know, 10 pixels on the LinkedIn page. I My first job out of college, so when computer engineering, you know, always knew both computer engineering and in a weird way, I don't know how, uh, knew I wanted to do that in Silicon Valley. Largely about like Pixar was here, uh, Electronic Arts, LucasArts, it's more like entertainment and video games. So I yeah. worked at Electronic Arts right out of school and that allowed three me months. to- Three months, three total months. You know, and it was, uh, it was video game night shifts. I literally had days where I would go to work at like 10.30 p.m. and leave at 8 a.m. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty nuts. But there's a reason they, they can do that is because people that build those things are really passionate about that stuff. So uh, they sometimes get taken advantage of. So anyways, that was like, okay, I checked this box of what I thought I always wanted to do. Then like, now what did I really want to do that thing? Um, and uh, then it kind of worked, you know, I, I wouldn't call it a dead end job, but it was more just kind of like a very, very much like an office space job for, for a couple of years after that. Uh, and it was during that time period, kind of that period of pain that was really the catalyst. And I decided, okay, what I liked about games and movies was you were automatically oriented around the, 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 the user, the person that was consuming it, right? Like you, every decision you make was just naturally, whether you were a designer or not, like you were thinking about this other person and you were building something for them. Um, and you know, if it's not games or movies, you know, we call that design for everything else. Um, and so I got really interested in design. I was just like, you know, uh, maybe I don't just want to be an engineer. I want to be a designer. And so basically applied everywhere, tried my hardest over a course of a year. The only person or company I even heard back from was IDEO. <laughs> and so I was very lucky. And <clears throat> for say there, actually the person in HR said, oh, you applied on the website? We never hire anybody on the website. So uh, it, was, it was because I applied as an engineer. So I was like one of two or three uh, computer engineers at IDEO. And yeah, it was just like a kid in a candy store. It was just like every day learning from people. So many smart people worked there. Um, and it was so, so fun. So it, that obviously was, like you said, so influential in what it became. And um, part of that kind of founding story uh, is one of the people that worked at IDEO with a woman named Jane Fulton Surrey. And she, uh, you know, kind of in the design world, she she really kind of spearheaded this idea of uh, human-centered design. You know, it's probably something you've heard thrown around, but, um, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, design was much more about kind of the 
the veneer, the, the look of it, or, you know, uh, designers right. design furniture. Right. Um, and, uh, and she really kind of brought this kind of rigor about, okay, understanding the person, the person using the product, doing research. And she wasn't a designer. She was a, uh, psychologist and, uh, you know, she had a couple, you know, they're almost more like, uh, lead gen kind of published books from IDEO, but there's one of those books called thoughtless acts. It's just like a small little book this big. And it's really just like a set of pictures of people using physical products outside of the range of what whoever built or invented that product intended. You know, an example would be like holding your hair up with a pencil or, uh, you know, like ashing your cigarette in a beer bottle top or something like that. Right. Like those are essentially like creative inventions. You know, somebody like solved a problem, in their physical world uh, and it, you know, they don't stop and say, Oh, wow, I'm so clever. You know, so many of those decisions are almost just like, yeah, that's, you know, what you can do. Um, and I begin to see that as a, you know, essentially programming, you know, on a really broad spectrum, somewhere along the line, you cross over from physical world programming to digital programming. Um, uh, so someone putting a pencil in her hair to keep her hair from falling down, like to keep that ponytail in place. Mm-hmm. She is programming using a pencil and you're starting to see that also as the same kind of creativity as a developer has. Yeah. Well, we have so much creativity in our kind of purely physical space that we take it for granted. Right. So like you understand what a pencil is. It's, it almost seems silly to talk about it like this. You understand what a pencil is, how it works, what are its properties, what are its functions, and then you can then say, okay, well, I could write with this. That's what it's used for. But I could also put it in my hair or I could make up a game and play pencil break, you know, like you kind of come up with a hundred different use cases and everybody is capable of that. No one really stops to think about it. So in a way in the physical world, everybody is a programmer. We're kind of constantly modifying our physical environment to solve problems, right? Like it's too bright outside close the blinds. Like, you know, maybe a little bit of a stretch to say that's programming, but like we're very confident that we can solve problems and kind of creatively reuse things in the physical world. And so the inspiration was, okay, well, when we go digital and everything is going more and more digital all the time, well, it's kind of haves and have nots. Programmers can kind of express that same creativity, but everybody else is basically kind of kind of tied to the whims and fancies of those programmers. And so if was really a response to say, like, how do we how do we make programming something that is accessible to everyone? You know what? I'd read that article. I think you even wrote a blog post about it. Once that idea hit you, you were standing in line for something. The mm-hmm. idea hit you. You said, okay, this is where I'm going. And I didn't fully understand the connection between a pencil and a hair to developers, but now I'm getting it. You're saying mm-hmm. if we could give people a box of tools like Lego, let's see what they put together. What if we give them Lego that allows programming? Mm-hmm. And essentially that's what if always was. Mm-hmm. coding for the regular person. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even uh, not to kind of mince words, but even Lego is like more like coding coding than what we're talking about. Like it's um, uh, people are less the silliest yep. example I used to give was, so you have a window open, you have papers on your desk and the papers start to blow around. Take your coffee cup, you put them on the paper, <laughs> right? right? Like you've just creatively solved a problem that, wasn't intended to be solved with a coffee cup, uh, right? Yeah. You just know that the coffee cup is heavier than the paper. You know, like this, my, my again, favorite so local, obvious. My favorite recent one is you go to people's offices; they have high-end, very expensive computers sitting on books or an Amazon box because they mm-hmm, don't mm-hmm. have a tool that quite gets the 
the thing up high enough. Mm-hmm. And so they do it. Okay, that was your idea. I'm curious about what's your next step. But first, let me tell people about my other podcast. It is about DAOs. Do you know much about DAOs, Lyndon? No. So no. Okay. Uh, <laughs> sorry. No problem. I'm actually going to open your eyes to it. DAOs are okay. basically their decentralized autonomous organizations, their communities. They can just go off and do what they want on their own. I'll tell you about the one that, cr- that led to the creation of Origami, my sponsor. A bunch of Y Combinator founders uh, were on a chat group talking about different crypto projects and different things that they like to invest in. And they decided, all right, let's just make an investment together. And they pulled their money together. And within a few days, they made some investments in a few crypto projects coming out of Y Combinator. They said, you know what? Why don't we do this again? But if we're going to do it again, why do it in the traditional way? Why should we go and become another venture capital firm, which, frankly, San Francisco had tons of them? They said, how do we do it differently? And they said, what if we create a DAO in this decentralized organization? Just about all of us, not just about any one of us Y Combinator alumni could help bring forward a potential company or project for us to invest in. Every one of us could actually uh, support those companies. What if we make a DAO? And so they did. They created a DAO. They raised a bunch of money. Most recently, um, I think they announced that they're up to $80 million now. And the cool thing about a DAO is not only did they make 100 investments within, I think it was 90 days, because it's a group of people who are all hunting, who are all working, who are all supporting. Why wouldn't you want to take their money? Um, But also they said, why do we have to limit ourselves to investing? If our whole vision is to help bring about a better world, why don't we do something else? And they're in this chat group thinking about it. And one of them said, you know, how about if we invest in entrepreneurs, not just in companies? And so within a short period of time, he put it up. Everyone in the Dow got a chance to vote on his idea. They voted and supported it. They took some money from the Dow. They gave it to him. And now, boom, they have what they call a fellowship, which invests in entrepreneurs. Like, I could probably go and get funding from them. And then I learn about Web3 through this fellowship, through the money that they're that they're giving me, through the uh, opportunity and the people they're introducing me to. And then if I create a company using what I learned within, I think the period is three months, then they could get equity in it. If I don't, no harm, no foul. I just move on into the world with this goodwill associated with the DAO. That is called Orange DAO, and it has been amazing. And so a few of the Y Combinator founders behind it said, why are we just doing this for ourselves? Let's open it up to others. And they created an organization called Origami. Origami, just like the thing you do with paper, that creates DAOs for others. They've done it for um, Kaufman Fellow. They've done it for a bunch. I don't think they allow me to tell you about all the different organizations that they're that they're doing it for. Um, because they are like the the invisible support for these DAOs. But if you're curious about DAOs, I created a podcast with them because I'm also curious and I want to see how it works. And Lyndon, if you're a podcast subscriber and everyone else who's listening to me, you should go to joinorigami.com slash podcast, the same kind of experience that you have here talking with entrepreneurs who've created companies you're going to have with DAO uh, creators and members in the whole community. Joinorigami.com slash podcast. There you go, Lyndon. Very cool. All right. So now you had this idea coming back to your story. What's the mm-hmm. first step you took to build it? Well, yeah, to talk about one of the thousands of mistakes, but I think the first thing I could think of was buy a domain. <laughs> uh, and so I think I bought you know, a handful of them, but you know, weirdly enough, it was, it was almost like the name of the company was the idea. Um, if this and that. And so uh, I think I convinced Vince, someone that was running a blog around if this and that, just kind of a personal blog uh, to, to, to let me buy the domain for five or 600 bucks. Uh, and that was the beginning. And I think um, really it took about a year and a half 
to kind of do enough of the the work that really gave me the confidence to say, okay, I'm going to go do this full time. So was saving money, you know, not you know taking all the money I was earning from the day job, uh, spending nights and weekends, uh, kind of building a prototype of it, um, kind of getting something that that could actually work and people could take a look at. And yeah, we we have had so many really kind of fortuitous things happen. You know, one of those uh, had a couple of buddies uh, through IDEO that uh, had gone to MIT. So when we launched kind of into like a private beta, um, you know, he shared it with uh, those folks that were still at MIT in the media lab. And I, you know, I always uh, thought of the MIT media lab folks as these kind of like, you know, superheroes or something you know, probably are. Uh, and so in a weird way, we got like so much credibility from them getting excited about it. I think it was somebody there that then posted that to like Hacker News. And so like a lot of the marketing, you know, wasn't even me thinking like, oh, okay, how do I get this, you know, really credible person to say this is cool? It kind of just happened. So, um, so yeah, we were very lucky in that regard. You used APIs in the beginning. Did you get permission from those companies to use their APIs or did you just go ahead and use them? Well, I mean, I like to say if was kind of founded at a time uh, that has passed, the golden age of APIs. You know, if you remember back, it was kind of like Flickr had an awesome API and then like Foursquare and Twitter and Facebook, you know, all these companies that really kind of thought of their API as, you know, the more open, the better. Like they were going to be the platform and the UI, you know, they just happened to be also the UI for the time being, but then like, yeah. you know, let other people build the UIs and, you know, Twitter most famously is the one that has struggled the most to go from, you know, anybody can build a Twitter client, you know, no one can build a Twitter client. And so I think some of that was maybe, uh, uh folks being naive, but also some of it I, I thought was actually really good and positive. And I think that's, you know, the only thing I'll say about, uh, DAO or any of the web three stuff is that it feels like they're kind of starting from that same place, right? Like, you know, we want to be decentralized. We want to be the platform. You know, it's about APIs. It's not about UIs. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's, uh, I think both righteous, but I think it also makes it a little bit more difficult, especially if you're trying to build a business. Um, well, so anyways, yeah, it was a very is, special time. I do remember that it was Flickr that was the most famous for it because they, they were an early web two company for photo sharing. They were an early exit to Yahoo. And they also were very big on saying that they created the APIs first, and then they happened to use their own APIs to create their website, and that opened mm -hmm. people's eyes. Yes, Twitter did the same thing, though they struggled, and you're talking about Twitter's mm -hmm. problem with it, which was, why would anyone use a Twitter app or see the Twitter ad mm -hmm. if mm -hmm. there's a third-party software that was better and faster and didn't have any advertising, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Okay, and so you, you were able to actually create connections. Do you remember the very first connection that you made? I think it was it was probably Twitter because I think Twitter had like one of the most kind of easily accessible and it had a lot of other like third party kind of open source libraries. Yep. So it's probably like Twitter to email like using email through SendGrid. Um, I think weather was an early one uh, at the time. Yahoo had a great weather API, you know, so like tracking the rain and getting an email. So it's like some combination and all, all of our IDs in the database are numerical. So I can like go back. Twitter was ID number two. Uh, I think, uh, email was three, weather was four. I don't even know what uh, ID one is anymore. I something got deleted. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, it, there was definitely something magical. Even when I did it the first time, you know, kind of went uh -huh. through this, this kind of, if this and that process and basically came out of it with a program that didn't look like a program and didn't feel like a program. 
And so you, when you had it, it took you a year on your own to build this whole thing. Then it started to spread because this is the kind of thing that naturally would spread in the tech community. Going for social happened to be because Twitter was so easy to work with, but also it gave you an upside in that Twitter is such a good sharing mechanism and especially was mm-hmm. back then. That all helped to take off. It was your brother and another co-founder from the very mm-hmm. beginning or at mm-hmm. that stage, mm-hmm. was it still just you? Yeah. So um, my brother uh, actually only just recently uh, left. He'd been with us for a very long time. Uh, he was sleeping on my couch in the living room. I had this kind of like little shoebox apartment in Hayes Valley in San Francisco, one bedroom. And so the living room was like my office. Uh, he had just moved over from New York, uh, was kind of doing some job searching, uh, sleeping on the couch. And so uh, it was almost like out of necessity, like, holy shit, this thing is working. <laughs> you know, we, we, we need someone to do other things. Uh, so he started working and... Uh, really kind of grew his career in a totally different direction. He had a, a film background. So I was really lucky to work with him and kind of navigated all that. You know, you're someone that started a company with your brother as well, it sounds like. And, you know, that's, did, yeah. that's not easy. Um, and so we, we made it through. And then we had uh, actually two other buddies from IDEO in the early days. And, um, you know, one of them within about six months said, uh, this, yeah, I don't think I want to do like the kind of, you know, startup journey. Uh, and then the other one, you know, a couple of years later, uh, kind of had a similar feeling. So, um, but yeah, it's one of the things that, you know, not just kind of <clears throat> saying this to say this, we've been so lucky to attract like good people just like kind of naturally. I don't know. It's just, there's something I could probably create a slideshow about it and call it the culture deck, but like we did something right and we keep doing that something right to attract folks that are kind of passionate, super talented and you know, easy to work with. So we've we've been lucky in that regard too. Let's think about why. I feel like partially because you are developer type of product, you're you're democratizing democratizing development. Mm-hmm. So you bring in more developers, and at the same time, it has a virality and a um, maybe not a, maybe virality is is not high powered, but there's still a lot of sharing in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that combination helps. Almost like Twilio would get great developers because who's using Twilio? It's other developers. What do you mm-hmm. think it is? And, and take me beyond what I see surface level. Yeah, it's definitely that. Like, <clears throat> we've always had a brand that was, you know, 100 times bigger than our business. You know, we're, we're still working on it. Um, but like something about the brand. But I also think that, um, you know, I'm still very much just like, you know, almost an optimist by default. And so that kind of golden age time period was just like, uh, it's magical. I, I kind of want to get back there. And it's one of the reasons I think Web3 is exciting. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that then came through in the decisions we made, the product we built, uh, the kind of care that went into building that. Um, and also like just kind of decisions that we would make, how we kind of communicated to folks. So there was something authentic there. Uh, the, you know, the brand certainly didn't, didn't hurt. Um, but it was kind of a way to have an early stage startup experience, uh, but still have confidence, you know, because there was this big brand and you, you know, especially in Silicon Valley, walk around and say you work for IFTA. People are like, oh, IFTA is cool. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of like, okay, well, that's that's also confidence inspiring. This can't fail. You know, this isn't just like joining some ragtag thing that they're not quite sure it will ever work. We had kind of worked to the extent that that, you know, there was some deep, you know, de-risking there. <laughs> but again, you know, the, the business itself has, has been the thing that we struggle with. And I think have really only just recently figured out to the extent that you know, I'm 
totally confident we're going to be massive. Uh, but the brand already is. So We talked about the challenge of going into device makers and enterprise and partnering with them and saying if you build IFT into your software, into your hardware, then you could get a better experience for your customers. I'm curious about how you were able to do that in the early days. Like, what's the first physical product that you got into? How did you convince others Mm -hmm. to jump in? Today, I feel like it's a natural, but back then, it seemed challenging. Yeah, it was, I think part of it uh, had to do, you know, talk a little bit about some of the the very kind of physical inspiration that led to what IFT was. Um, You know, some of it was us talking about that. Uh, Some of it was even just like kind of design decisions, how the product worked, you know, everything was like really big uh, type and font, really sparse and just like the logo there. And it was really easy to kind of see like, okay, well, the, you put the Twitter or the Instagram logo there. Uh, but what if we put like a light bulb logo there? Uh, and that was kind of the intent. Like we, we, in a way, we didn't build IFT in anticipation of IoT and connected devices, uh, but it kind of just like came together. And so like Nest Thermostat and some of those early IoT things. The first IoT device was um, Belkin Wemo. Uh, and I think now I have 10 or 12 different things. They had, a, they had two things. One was a motion sensor and one was uh, basically a plug. You plug it into the wall and you plug something else into it, connect it to your Wi-Fi. And uh, yeah, they found us and somehow convinced us to work with their like crazy, you know, it's when hardware manufacturers start building web APIs, uh, you should run for the hills a little bit. You know, they've gotten way better over, the, over time, you know, as they've evolved. But yeah, I remember that first API looking at it like, oh, shit, what have I gotten myself into? Um, but yeah, we launched But they said, please build in with us. Was mm-hmm. Were the early clients, were they clients, these early hardware manufacturers? No, no. And, you know, we, we didn't know at the time how the business would work. I think this was all, I think this, we, we built some of the Belkin stuff. I, I think I recall building that in the living room. So we were still just like two or three people in the living room, uh, probably had raised some of the seed funding by then. But uh, also, you know, <clears throat> one of the other problems with the golden age was, you know, hard to even imagine it now. But, you know, there was a lot of, you know, just build it as big as you can. You can raise a lot of money on that. Keep building it bigger. Right. Like that's basically what Twitter was for a long time. Um, uh, what kind of the path Instagram was on. I think they all had ideas. They all knew it was probably going to be advertising. There wasn't a lot of pressure to figure that out earlier to have a really coherent story. And that changed pretty quickly, you know, 2013 or 14. Uh, and I think that's actually good. Um, but yeah, there was there was a lot of other weird stuff that, you know, that they just never even thought about the business. Not not that we never thought about the business as much as we just didn't think we had to. Like the incentive was to get it in front of as many people, get as many other brands on there as possible. And at the time, the easiest way to do that was to not charge them. Um, so yeah, yeah. Weren't our, weren't our customers at the time. At what point did you start charging? I think we started customers to charge users. The, I mean, yeah, the brands themselves, uh, six or seven years ago. Um, and, uh, that was, like I said, it was, it was very difficult. It was, you know, convincing, you know, a lot of those brands that had been on there for free, you know, it's always hard to go. We've done this twice now with the brands and users. It's always hard to go from like, Hey, you know, you thought this was free, not anymore. No one likes to hear that. Even I don't like to hear that. But, you know, when you really think about it, and if you're not a total troll, it's, well, yeah, we are trying to build a business. Uh, it just kind of sucks to get caught up in the in the pivot. Um, but, you know, the brands were pretty patient with that. They understood. Uh, they definitely saw the value 
And because we've always had, I think we have 26 million users now, we've always been big enough just in terms of a user base. Uh, and, you know, more than half those users are still active, you know, so that we, we have people using it for all the time that that kind of let us, I think, get away with it. And almost, you know, I wish we had failed faster building that enterprise business, right? Like, I think we felt like we were kind of on that trajectory where you get to like a million in the first year, two, two and a half million. Okay. Five million. Okay. Okay. Well, this is kind of the path, right? But um, yeah, somewhere around 5 million, 6 million, we just decided this is really, really hard. <laughs> uh, it's too hard. It should be easier. Um, so yeah, that's switched over to pulling the bandaid off with users. And so what was it like charging users? Were there a lot of complaints? Was it, it seemed like it was revenue pretty quickly with some complaints. Yeah, definitely complaints. Um, kind of goes back to, because I think so many of the decisions we've made have come from a, a place where we do care about the people that use the product. And it's so much, I think, easier to care about an individual person than it is to care about like an enterprise of people. Um, so we just naturally cared about people using the product. And so when it was you know, even painful internally uh, to convince the team that that was the right thing to do. You know, oh, everybody's going to hate us <laughs> you know, in the same way that we, we've been able to hire a lot of good people because, you know, you can walk down the street in your IFT shirt and someone said, oh, IFT is really cool. Um, I think people were worried that they wouldn't say it was cool. Uh, what's happened, though, and I think is, is still happening and, <clears throat> you know, it, I'm sure we'll be able to say something even more definitive about it in three or four years is that we went from, you know, people paying for Netflix, you know, maybe Dropbox, you know, I'm talking consumers here. Uh, you know, maybe a couple other things to, I think, a much broader audience, especially in kind of the developed countries saying, you know what, maybe we should pay for some of this stuff. Uh, and I think, you know, it, it will continue to expand uh, to the point where, you know, we're all going to be happy to pay for Google, uh, not just for our businesses, but just for Gmail. Uh, I don't know when that'll happen. But, uh, you know, I think if you ask some of the people really high up in Google, they'll tell you in 10 years. You know, they all are going to say their business will be totally different and they'll, they'll, they'll be charging the same people that they're giving all this stuff away for for free. How they get there and how they kind of make that change and when they're going to be forced to make that change, no one really knows. But they're pretty Yeah, you and I talked about uh, chat GPT before we got started. Mm -hmm. I feel if they started off with a search engine at some point and they said from the beginning, you pay for this but here's how it's going to work. I think mm -hmm. they would have a much easier time than Google would transitioning people to paid. And I think a lot of people would feel comfortable paying if mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. hit on some of the real pain points they have, which is lack of privacy. But then again, I don't know. Consumers pay for entertainment and and then they pay for problem solving. So, you know, if it was, mm -hmm. if it was just a general search engine, I don't know that they would pay. But if you mm -hmm. said to homeowners, this is going to be the chat that solves your like handyman chat. Mm -hmm. I think people would pay because now they have a handyman bucket. They own a house. They have to pay a certain amount. This is going to reduce it. Great. This mm -hmm. is going to be your, I don't know what, where if you could save the money, if you could reduce an expense, I feel like that's where they, they pay. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I've been thinking about yeah. this a lot too, as you and I. Oh talk. yeah. Like I, and I'm, I'm kind of right there with some of the, those Google folks where it's like, I think it would be bad advice to like start a social network today and say, oh, well, this is going to be, you know, something that people have to pay for. You know, the, people just aren't ready, like you said, to pay for 
you know, photo sharing or, you know, like, and I think what, what has to happen is there has to be some other wrinkle where it's, it's maybe solving the same problem, but in a different right. enough way. And that's what you're saying with chat GP, right? Like it's, they get an opportunity, even though they might be able to solve the same type of problem that Google search does, it's different enough that you almost have a fresh, you have a fresh kind of slate with their potential customers. And so that, I think is that difference, uh, that we just almost have to wait for in so many different categories where people will say, oh, actually, yeah, we should pay for this. Um, so yeah, it'll, it'll take time, but I, it feels inevitable. Uh, I told you my second sponsor is Lemon. Anyone who needs to hire a developer already knows about Lemon.io slash Mixergy, so I'm not going to beat it to death. I'm just going to say, Linda knows, I know, now you know. Actually, you always did. Lemon.io slash Mixergy to get an even lower price from them on developers than they ordinarily have. What are you exploring for fun? Like, where, where are your new yeah. ideas and maybe your escape from ideas? Where's that? Uh, you know, I think for fun, you know, I love to read. Uh, I've gone way into like, you know, kind of like the, the uh, ancient history slash conspiracy. You know, Graham Hancock has the new Netflix show. And I think I had read all his books or continue to read all his books over the years. Um, but things like that, you know, trying to understand kind of where we come from, where we're going, how does that connect into, you know, I was uh, very fortunate to, to be raised in a family that was, you know, kind of like the first generation of folks with my mom and dad who kind of consciously decided that, you know, religion wasn't going to be a big part. You know, they weren't like anti-religion, you know, uh, as much as, you know, I don't think we need to go to church every Sunday. Okay. And uh, I think there's kind of an absence there then that, you know, I don't think it was a bad thing. I'm very thankful because that I think made me very open-minded. Um, but then you start to question, yeah, wait, you know, what is it all about? And so, uh, uh, books that kind of scratch that it's one of the, the books I've read, um, uh, recently that's kind of similar ish, but you know, a little bit less either religion or conspiracy is called, uh, the dawn of everything. I can't remember is by two authors. But it very bad, like if you like Sapiens or Gunsterms and Steel or anything like that, uh, it's kind of in that same vein where it's almost like uh, a different lens to look on a historical narrative that we've kind of gotten wrong. And that that was really about, um, uh, you know, the as we came over from, you know, Europe to North and South America, you know, you know everybody was talking about, you know, how plagues and, you know, it just it was basically a terrible, terrible thing. Uh, uh, but what was lost was, you know, a lot of our kind of, uh, uh, thinking about what was actually there, not just in terms of the people, but like how those people were governed, how they were organized and kind of even back to like, you know, the stuff about the Dow and thinking about new ways in which people can organize. Um, but a lot of the folks, you know, the native North Americans, you know, South Americans, uh, whether it was the Incans or the, you know, the folks around uh, the, the Great Lakes had very unique ways in which they organized and created peace. You know, like the, uh, in the Great Lakes, they had what was effectively NATO, where they had, you know, uh, centuries of peace because there were five or six different tribes, you know, massive groups of people that said, you know, if you attack one, you attack all. Uh, and the way that they actually kind of went about that and, you know, how they would elect who was the leader and they had different leaders at different times. And so like, we've kind of 
gone, you know, kind of walked past all that and have this, I think that, you know, very negative stereotype is now, I think we've kind of opened up and realized that that was wrong, but I think we haven't totally turned the corner to say like, oh, actually there's probably a lot of stuff you can learn uh, if you go back and really kind of study uh, what was possible um, with totally different variables. And so that, that, that is so interesting to me. Uh, you know, the book is called Dawn of Everything, but uh, kind of thinking about what was it really like and what did they actually get right that we thought we've gotten right all along, but have probably gotten totally wrong. What do you do with all that? I remember when I first read business books, it opened my eyes to what was possible in the world that I could create a company just like all these other people and where it could go mm -hmm. and how accessible it was. And now when I read a book, I feel like, where am I going with it? I'm much more yeah. interested in general interest topics because if there's a specific thing I need, I can go find a video, a blog, a podcast, and anything about it on mm -hmm. that issue online. Mm -hmm. And so books are more for general understanding, but then I'm left going, now what do I do with it? What do you think? One of, um, one of the like company values, you know, <clears throat> every startup's got them. If you've got, a, if you've got an actual physical wall, maybe you put them on the wall. The one that I always felt was our strongest value was always learning. And, you know, it's kind of another way to say, you know, you turn mistakes into learning opportunities. But like the other aspect to it was um, kind of this desire to pursue understanding something uh, just because that that path or that journey to understanding is the reward, right? Like you don't necessarily have to take that understanding and then make something with it. I think you can. And uh, kind of like yourself, I... I went there for, it was probably like a decade where you just like read every business book, all the ones in the past, you know, you know, a hundred different versions of crossing the chasm, you know, and, and they were really exciting and interesting. Um, but I, I don't think I've read a business book for two or three years now. Um, and it's not because I think I know everything as much as I feel like I've, I've, I've satisfied my appetite for learning there, right? Like I, I'm sure there's always more to learn as much as I, I found other areas where, didn't know as much or uh, learning comes much more quickly and those are just so much more interesting but you're saying i'm having an oh. issue here because you and i rec are recording on a day that i don't usually record and we ended up having cleaning people in here and so i'm messing with my microphone levels to make sure it doesn't come through um i used to record these interviews when i first moved to austin i got excited about being outside i used to record them outdoors and then I would have all the systems in place to eliminate all the random noises. And now that I've been back indoors, it's, it's more challenging when noise comes on. I guess what you're saying is, look, Andrew, this is just education for education. Learn for the sake of learn and enjoy the pleasure of that. That's what it's totally. for you. And I think it's what ends up happening, though, is, is the, <clears throat> the broader, you know, I used to have this thing that I always go back to is like the T-shaped individual. Have you ever heard? someone talk about that it's one of those things that have kind of a, mm -hmm. a little bit more but you have deep expertise there's like something you're like world-class and the best in the world but to really get the most out of that thing you're the best in the world at you've got to have a broad set of interests and that broad set of interests, you know so that kind of makes the t is that broad set of interest that allows you to approach you know problems in that kind of deep specialty in a new way and so i think sometimes to have a broad set of interests you almost have to pursue those just because you're interested in them, not because you have a plan for what to do with them. Like um, what? How, how has that helped you? I think, um, you know, for me, it, a lot of it has, has helped me in relating with people. 
you know, for a long time, I was very interested in like psychology and, and thinking about how um, people communicated both, you know, kind of negative and positive, you know, uh, kind of the classic one that a lot of, uh, you know, entrepreneurs probably talk about is like how to make, make friends, how to win friends and influence people, the Dale Carnegie or something Carnegie book. Um, I always thought that was really funny because <clears throat> I think that was like Ted Bundy said that was his favorite book as well. <laughs> so, <clears throat> but it's like, you know, just like books like that where you're thinking about, uh, you know, you're interested in basically how people work and how relationships work. And then you can immediately then think of, okay, well, how do I apply that, um, uh, to working with people, you know, at, at building a company of, of any real size, you know, I think most entrepreneurs will probably say their biggest problem is people hiring people, getting people to work well together, uh, getting, you know, people to work well with you, uh, at the right time, in the right place. And so I think, you know, not only if you're building like an internet company, you probably have to be pretty technical. Uh, you probably have to have a, a really good business savvy, but you know, at the end of the day, if you're going to build a, a, a big company, especially you've got to understand people and, and figure out ways to connect with them. And sometimes the skills that make you really good at programming, you know, as we've seen, there's a lot of stereotypes don't make you really good with people. My problem has always been that I felt that anything artistic was a waste of time. Focus mm. on the business, the numbers. And then when I did my marathon on every continent, I, I decided I would videotape and photograph and things like that. And that gave me a real appreciation for how to make other things more interesting, like how to do better storytelling mm -hmm. and interviews, mm -hmm. how to communicate with people. Um, and also, as I started driving, even during COVID, Olivia, my wife and the kids and I would go and find these random beaches off of San Francisco, which I never discovered before COVID. Mm -hmm. And I would start to look out the window and see things that I didn't see existed before and notice visuals and landscape and frankly, even locations that I'd passed through in a way that I didn't before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I wish I'd done that more at the beginning of Mixergy. I remember Ryan Carson, the designer who went on to found Treehouse and is now doing stuff in crypto. He always used to say to me, you're suffering for lack of design. And I never understood why, mm -hmm. but I understood mm -hmm. that he was right. And then lately I've been really understanding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I've so many books in that direction. You know, it's, I think like a lot of people refer to like Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, almost mm -hmm. like, you know, as a book that, you know, help helps you appreciate almost like the divine and the mundane. Mm. Um, so like, I love to run too, but not because of the athletic activity of it. It's actually I, it's really impressive that you've done a marathon on every continent. Um, I love to run just to like, look around and, yeah. and just, you know, living in San Francisco is, I think such a beautiful city to do that in, but it's just, you know, when I plan my run, I don't plan like, you know, how do I get the best exercises? Like, how do I see the coolest stuff? You Me know, too. like, how do I look That's in the biggest houses? <laughs> Especially when I land. If I land in a new country, I want to see how quickly can I go for a run because it's the best way to experience it. Kind of like Zen and the Art of Motorcycle. Uh, what was it? Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Repair? Ma motorcycle maintenance. 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 Yeah. Where he talks about how the best way to see the world is not in a car because you've got windows everywhere keeping you back, but on a bike because you're really out in it. I feel like for running, it's even further. And I get to Better, go and yeah. see the area and get to know the environment. And also it helps with jet lag because if you do a good run when you land, you're going to sleep well. Totally, totally. All right. 
Well, thanks so much for being on here. Congratulations. I had an idea for, um, oh, I know, I had an idea for an automation earlier while we were talking that I don't know why I hadn't thought of before. So I'm getting mm-hmm. echo in here because of the windows. I don't know that I can get rid of the windows, like shut them up, but wouldn't it be interesting mm-hmm. if as soon as the app that you and I are using to connect turns on, I get one of those things that Amazon is selling that will shut the these soundproofing uh, shades that I brought yeah. And then give me the experience. And then when the thing is closed, open it back up. It's the only time I keep it open. That's Ooh, what yeah, that's is about, great. right? Totally. Oh, the the use case that has been pretty popular is like that same thing, but like for like watching TV or watching movies. So more entertainment mm. based and kind of, you know, back to our kind of consumer versus like building something for a business. Um, also reminds me, there's a number of folks like working from home uh, that, uh, you know, do something with their doorbell like mute it when they're in a meeting. Uh, sometimes we'll actually take the doorbell and have it not make a sound, but like show up in like a Slack channel uh, if they're online. Uh, so <laughs> those are all, I, those are things that reminded me of what you're saying. But uh, I think I we have some automated of, blinds, but that use case I've never seen. Automated blinds are pretty interesting. They're, they're mm-hmm. really expensive and I understand why they're moving. Um, mm-hmm. But the other thing I thought of, when this app, I'm using Riverside, when Riverside is open, you can imagine that I could get on a little stand right outside my door now that I'm working from home, a mm-hmm. thing that says on the air and turns on. And now everyone knows Andrew's on mm-hmm. the air. Just mm-hmm. that's one of the few things my, my family respects. Um, <laughs> there you go. To respect yeah. chess. If I was playing chess, they would give me space. Now it's like, well, you're always playing chess. Then we chess. <laughs> okay. uh, but interviews they respect. All right, Lyndon, thanks so much for being on here. I'm glad that you're doing interviews. I've seen over the years you haven't done like a ton of them and you're not really somebody who's loving getting attention for yourself. I feel like you're much more of a subtle person. Your mm-hmm. site has always been, I've gone back through the internet archive. It's always been really clear and simple. I even went back to Film Foray, um, <laughs> your old website yeah. for your old business. Yeah. It's very much inspired by IDEO. We care about what the person cares about and nothing else. They're not totally. going to be random stars on, on your site. Thanks for being on here. Thank you as well, Andrew. Pleasure. Thanks. Bye, everyone. And thank you to my two sponsors. Uh, The first is if you're thinking about or curious about what these new organizational structures called DAOs are, go to joinorigami.com slash podcast. Listen to my podcast there. And if you're hiring developers, you already know. Go to lemon.io slash Mixergy. And now that I've said that, I should say thank you, everyone. Thank you, Lyndon. Bye.